This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Marissa Polanski. Marissa is an administrative fellow in the Kaiser Permanente Healthcare System. She received her Master's of Health Administration from the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Over the last five years, Marissa has held administrative roles in the University of Iowa and University of Oregon healthcare systems as well as at Mass General in Boston. Marissa, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. So before we get into it, I I just wanted to take a moment to acknowledge the courage and resilience being demonstrated by individuals throughout our country. So we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, March 24th, 2020, um, when our nation is in the heart of the the COVID-19 crisis. Thanks to all those in the healthcare and our national supply chain uh, whose efforts are are keeping our communities afloat. Now, Marissa, uh, you've worked actively in Kaiser Permanente's efforts uh, to stop the spread of coronavirus in what are called COVID-19 command centers. Uh, What is the purpose of a command center and what role do you play when working there? Yeah, so the um, command center structure is pretty well established at Kaiser Permanente and, um, you know, might vary a little bit by healthcare system to healthcare system, but it's something that we're sort of used to doing, um, especially in the state of California. You know, we have earthquakes, floods, um, things like this that that happen all the time. But this is just, um, you know, different, obviously, because it's hitting our entire nation. We're not, you know, an isolated hospital or healthcare system experiencing some type of crisis. Um, and we're also starting to see that this is definitely going to be more of a marathon than a sprint. So that's sort of the, the context that our command centers are existing in right now. But um, basically, the way KP is structured, we have you know, what we call program office, which is our sort of national um, enterprise-wide leaders. So they have a command center set up at the national level, and then it sort of tiers all the way down to all of our different regions, Southern California, Northern California, all of those different regions have their own regional level command center. And then um, each local medical center or service area also has command centers set up. So I was sort of um, in the middle of switching from a local rotation in, in Riverside, California to um, a regional-based rotation in financial services. Um, so my last week of my rotation in Riverside was actually sort of just, you know, in the midst of all this COVID stuff. So I wasn't an official member of the command center. We usually have, um, you know, certain operational leaders that are plugged into different um, formal spots in that command center so that they're assigned to sort of field specific functions. Um, so I was just in and out of the command center in one part, just observing and listening and learning as part of the fellowship program. One of my roles is to sort of, you know, try to prepare to, to be a leader um, someday in Kaiser Permanente or at another health system. So this was a great opportunity for me to just be a sponge and, and soak up as much as possible, knowing that, you know, maybe someday I will be in, in that sort of decision, decision-making chair and, and sort of taking as many learnings as I can with that in mind. Um, and then also was just helping with um, a different smattering of projects. Um, one thing I helped support was, uh, launching our, what we're calling our curbside or sort of our drive-through pharmacy um, with, with the idea being that, you know, with the influx of concern about cold and flu symptoms, all these folks are trying to get their medications quickly. Um, some of them urgently for COVID related symptoms, other people that are just, you know, might be well, but are worried about what's to come and want to start, you know, getting a, a, a head start on stockpiling medications they might need. So we're experiencing a lot of 
volume in our pharmacies um, and we wanted to practice social distancing. So we came up with a drive-through model where we had sort of runners going between the cars and the actual pharmacy where people that were sick could self-quarantine in the car and still get their urgent medications that they needed and then sort of shifting the rest of our volume to our mail order pharmacy pipelines that folks didn't even have to leave their, their leave their homes to um, get their medications. So that was one sort of specific example of something that I was involved in. Did, is most of the testing that's, that's occurring through Kaiser at like just hospital medical locations or are there additional testing locations as well? Um, so, I mean, we definitely have testing available um, for our inpatient folks, anyone that's admitted that meets the criteria that they would need to be tested. And that was sort of our first priority was that, that inpatient testing for the, the critically ill. And then over the last week, we've developed um, you know, outpatient testing capabilities. So if people come in to a clinical visit or if they're seen through a telephone appointment and they meet criteria, um, we can do that in the outpatient setting. And then the next step for us has been to sort of do that same thing we did with pharmacy, but do it with testing so that we have sort of drive-through testing for folks that meet the criteria so that, again, they were just limiting points of contact and they can sort of um, stay in that car and we can keep volume, you know, sort of cranking through as efficiently as possible. How, how uh, have you felt that you've just responded to the whole uh, crisis in general in the healthcare setting? Like, do you sort of embrace the, the, the challenge of, of taking on this thing or um, has it just been almost too much, too quick kind of thing? Um, I mean, I think on the one hand, this is sort of, I mean, obviously we never want crises like this to occur, but we do spend a lot of time and energy in healthcare training for situations like this. And I think, you know, especially for our, our clinicians, our doctors and our nurses, you know, things like this are are why those folks went into healthcare was because they want to to help people in, in times of extreme need. And so I think in a lot of ways, healthcare, you know, thrives in crisis because all of the, you know, political stuff, the bureaucratic stuff that you that you have to work through on a day-to-day basis sort of goes out the window and we're just, um, you know, focused on speed to execution and, you know, leveraging all the relationships that we have to just keep the member at the center and really take the best care of people that we can. So in that way, it's been sort of a really a cool way to, to watch the whole organization and really the whole healthcare industry sort of come together. Um, but I, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be interesting the next few months to, to see how how much of a surge we actually get and how long this actually lasts. Um, because I think, you know, burnout will certainly be a factor in that. And that's something that we're trying to prepare for, but that's going to be the, the really challenging piece. I think that I'm worried about is the burnout piece. And then also the supply needs that everyone's facing and making sure that we are not putting our own staff in harm's way and asking them to sort of rise to that occasion. Sure. Well, I wanted to shift away from COVID now. Um, and just talk about your your work, generally speaking, as a health administrator, um, and and sort of a, a broad sense. You know what what gets you out of bed uh, for your health administration work, and and what are your kind of goals that you really strive for in that field? Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think for me, I always knew I wanted to be in healthcare in in some perspective, and so I think it was really, you know, throughout college and and early in my graduate training, was deciding whether I wanted to do that in a more direct one-to-one basis or more of an indirect systems basis. And so the systems perspective is really um, what gets me excited. I think, um, you know, healthcare affordability, I'm really passionate about. Um, I think it's, it's sometimes hard in, in an administrative role to draw the direct line between, you know, the, the financial analysis or whatever that you're doing and, and how that's going to impact um, a patient or some, or some family's healthcare. But 
Um, I think as we, especially in a model like Kaiser Permanente, where we're integrated and coordinated and sort of managing, intentionally managing a whole population, um, I get excited when I can um, see the impact of that kind of work. So using the affordability example, you know, if we're able to take 1% out of our cost structure every year of however many billions of dollars our, our budget is, you know, that translates to 10 or 20 or $30 that each member is not having to pay per month for their healthcare coverage so that can either, you know, increase coverage in general and, and allow more people to have healthcare coverage, or it can make the burden of paying for healthcare in our country, you know, less of a burden to those individuals and those families. So that's kind of the, the stuff that gets me excited is being part of those conversations um, and making some of those decisions that will eventually trickle down to, you know, improving people's lives on a, on an individual basis. Yeah, you alluded to it that you knew, uh, or maybe you, you definitely wanted to be in some form of healthcare, um, and it was sort of the one-to-one versus um, systems idea. W- was there kind of a tipping point where you said, hey, clinical care isn't for me? I really like this um, health administration uh, more. Yeah, I think, um, so yeah, college was, I knew, going into college, I knew I wanted to be in healthcare, and that I, I sort of tried everything under the sun <laughs> related to healthcare and trying to figure out what clicked for me. I was, you know, worked in a human physiology lab, thought I wanted to be a researcher. I spent the whole summer shadowing a pediatrician in Eugene, thought I wanted to be a pediatrician, um, was an emergency room scribe for a while, thought I wanted to be an ER doctor. So I kind of tried all of that and I, I enjoyed and learned a lot from everything, but nothing really sort of clicked until I did a, an internship at Oregon Health and Science University, which is the, the big academic med- medical center in Portland, Oregon, where I'm from. Um, and I was exposed to the administrative work for for the first time, OHSU is sort of one of the health systems that's led the country on embracing lean methodology, which is just a way of thinking about, you know, reducing waste and continuous process improvement. And that really just clicked with me for some reason. And and so that was sort of the, the moment that I knew that I wanted to shift away from clinical and be more administrative. And I think a large part of that too was, um, you know, mentorship that I received, um, there was a, a girl finishing up who was a fellow at that health system, and she sort of took me under her wing um, and explained this whole career path to me. And so I think um, it was both just the exciting work that I got to be a part of and also having sort of um, that role model and that, that mentorship energy that kind of shifted me in that direction. Yeah, as I was thinking about health administration today, um, it seemed kind of funny. You're, you're, I imagine you're very involved in sort of developing an environment that is conducive to a good doctor-patient relationship, but then you're also sort of looking at the 10,000-foot view of, 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 you know, a lot of doctors and a lot of patients. So is there, is there time, times in your day where you have to sort of think more on the small scale with, like, just a, just a sort of one-to-one intimate um, interaction between a doctor and a patient, and then other times where you just, you just sort of, like I said, just go up and look at everything big? Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what that's what I've come to like the most about my job. And I think about administration in general is I do get that that variation. Sometimes I have to be you know more intentional about it. Like a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at in our medical center, we were looking at optimizing our our EVS, our environmental services, um, janitorial staff and making sure that we had the right number of staff at the medical center and making sure that we were uh, measuring the productivity correctly and, and all of this stuff. Um, in sort of an administrative way. And then I also um, sort of chose to spend a day, you know, shadowing and sort of just in my scrubs, sort of doing their job with them. Um, and so I think 
sometimes as an administrator, you have to be more intentional about that. That I didn't necessarily have to do that to complete the task or complete the project. But um, I think when you when you take the time to to find ways to build that one to one interaction into the ten thousand foot analysis or decisions that you're making, that's when I think you're more likely to make the right decision or to at least understand the the real implications of the decision you're making. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of the administrative equation and something that probably gets harder and harder to do as you kind of sort of climb the ladder and get more and more closer to that 10,000 foot level. Uh, but I think the, the administrators that I've seen that are truly excellent at their job, that's sort of what differentiates them in my mind. Yeah, I, I think that sort of brings to mind um, how as, you, as, as leaders in a healthcare system, right, you you need physicians and you need like administrators. So the doctor or the, the doctors are obviously in that, you know, one-to-one very more often. So that how not only you as a person looking both one-to-one and 10,000 foot, but then having people doing, you know, specializing in either of those things. How does that, um, how do you, how do you sort of create a productive leadership environment uh, with both those types of people? Oh, yeah, that's, that's an excellent point, too, that it doesn't all have to be one person's job that you can leverage the expertise and the, the perspectives of other folks. And I think um, most healthcare systems have done a really good job of sort of doing that, what we call the physician administrative dyad structure. So um, most academic medical centers and, and most non-academic health systems have some version of that structure where, you know, starting at the department level, a, a chief physician would be paired with an administrative director, and then it goes all the way up to the top where you would have a CEO of the, phys- of the health plan or the hospital also paired with like a chief medical officer or some other physician title that sort of is leading the physician group. So I think our structure in healthcare sort of does that for us, but I think the challenge is to make sure that there, there isn't an unnecessary tension between those two sort of entities or sides of the house. And I think different health systems do a better or worse job at that. And a lot of it is just based on what leader happens to be in that role and how those relationships have been fostered or not fostered over time. But I think the next sort of wave, which I think Kaiser Permanente has done a good job leading on, is how do we also um, bring nursing leadership into the fold of that? Because they also are clinical, but they have a very different clinical perspective than a physician might have. Um, So I think that will be sort of in the next five to 10 years, it's already gotten a lot of energy and attention, but I think that will be um, the thing that we continue to expand on as far as having all of those perspectives at the table. Could you elaborate that on that more, the nurse leadership piece? I think that can certainly cause tension um, amongst your staff, right? When you have nurses, physicians, assistants, phys- physicians, probably all of them want to be calling the shots at one time mm-hmm. or another. Um, so how is uh, KP going forward and, trying to implement nurse leadership without creating, um, you know, a toxic environment. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think KP has been, been doing it for a while. I mean, I think it comes down to sort of your, your leadership development pipeline and your, the career ladder that you outline for people, whether you sort of as an organization have that career ladder established and say that, you know, after you have three to five years of nursing experience, there is an opportunity to, to then manage the unit and then progress to X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think that's one piece of it, but I think another piece of it is more of a, a macro conversation of our whole you know, country and our whole medical culture. I think a lot of the reasons why those conversations can sometimes create a toxic culture is because of you know, the hierarchy that used to exist 
you know, that we all hear stories about still where, you know, physicians throwing things in the operating room or, you know, way back in the day, nurses standing up and giving their chair to a physician and then lighting their cigarette when they got onto the unit. So, I mean, there's all this like historical feelings in the healthcare system about what the the physician nurse relationship in particular should look like or used to look like. Um, so I think it's also just a, you know, as generations shift and as, as that sort of old hierarchy is kind of forgotten, I think we'll have an easier time continuing to move that forward. When, when thinking about health administration, I see um, sort of three things and, and I'm sure you could add on and, and correct me on this, but like accessibility, quality, and cost reduction, those seem like three big pillars of health administration. Is, is that correct? Yes. That I would, the triple aim, certainly. Yeah, I would agree with that. So what tools do you have uh, in your toolkit as an administrator um, to address accessibility, quality, and cost reduction? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think the, the main thing that we've we at KP and as a healthcare system, when, when I think about that, at least I think about um, sort of it's become kind of a cliche phrase, but, you know, standardizing when appropriate. I feel like that's sort of the the default when you try to think about those things and think about the gap between where we are and where we should be um, is, you know, looking at the data and, and, and relying on that data to identify where we have opportunities to standardize or bring people more in line with the folks that are performing at the level that we want them to be performing at. Um, so I, I think, you know, data is one of those tools. And then also, um, you know, relationships. I think that that feels, at least before I started doing this kind of work, that felt very like sort of soft to me. Um, but I think especially working through this COVID crisis, I think um, that's become more meaningful to me because you never know when you're going to need to um, leverage those relationships, whether it's having someone who, like if you're trying to move the needle on a, a physician issue related to quality, me as an administrator walking into the room and saying, hey, you should be prescribing more of this type of pharmaceutical because it's half the cost and the clinical trial that just came out in JAMA shows that it's a better outcome. Me saying that doesn't mean a whole lot, even if I do know my stuff. So, so having those relationships to sort of translate that data through someone that is a peer to that person that I'm trying to influence um, is sort of the other, I think, big tool that administrators use to try to try to move the needle on those three things. Um, and I think that, I guess, so data relationships, and then I think the third thing is, which is kind of the same as data, but kind of different, is sort of, you know, benchmarking or, or paying attention to best practices. Um, internally in KP, we have the luxury of having lots of different medical centers and hospitals spread out throughout our whole systems. We, we always have, and we have all of the data available to us internally. So we always have somewhere we can turn to and say, who's doing home care better? Who's doing um, preventative screenings better? What can we do? How can we link up the low performer with the high performer and make sure that we're, um, you know, again, standardizing and bringing them in line to that, that best performance. But I think um, in the outside world, that's often a lot a lot more challenging because even if you have another system to look to, they might be so different from you in the way that they're structured and the way that they measure their data that it might not be super meaningful. So that's just another, I think, barrier that we have to work through. And as we become more integrated as a country in our health system, I think that will get easier, hopefully. Yeah, what you're saying definitely reminds me of a lecture I attended recently about um, just sort of, you know, quality assurance amongst healthcare professionals, right? how that can be such a 
daunting task. And even though you have data, like sometimes the, the parameters under which the data was collected um, aren't necessarily consistent. So that's just a huge like challenge, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know if you've, perhaps it's maybe uh, a bit more streamlined at KP, like you said, with the integrated health system, everything's kind of uh, done in-house. But um, when you look, I guess, at least on like a, you know, larger national or even regional level, um, doing those things can be uh, certainly a challenge with, with the data. Um, I guess more uh, specific to Southern California uh, that I would like to know about is um, accessibility, right? You just have um, a large community of, there's definitely poverty uh, is definitely an issue. And um, you have individuals from a variety of backgrounds. Um, so that immediately kind of uh, makes me think of accessibility. How is, is KP working uh, on accessibility in Southern California? Yeah, I mean, I think at a macro level, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is enabling, you know, using our, so we, so we have, I guess I'll back up a second. So a lot of our, our enrollment is, you know, commercial, commercial line of business. So folks that get our healthcare insurance product through their employer purchasing KP health insurance for them, either as their only option or as one of the options that they might select into every year. Um, so that's a lot of our business, but I think um, as the, the pressure builds, you know, politically and um, just as we align more and more with our mission, um, increasing our percentage of our care that is delivered to Medi-Cal or basically that's the California version of, of Medicaid patients, um, that's sort of where we can do a large align share of our part in helping to increase access for our communities. Um, so I think that's one thing that comes to mind and, and the work that goes on behind that is how do we make sure that our system is structured in a way where providing care to a, a Medi-Cal or a Medicaid patient who we might not get reimbursed at the same level from for that we are getting reimbursed, you know, from a commercial payer, how do we structure ourselves in a way where we're still able to to provide our insurance product to everyone that needs it, even if they do fall into that Medicaid enrollment line of business. Um, and how do we sort of balance that based on the revenue we're receiving from other lines of business? So that's one piece. Um, I think another piece is how do we think more upstream, even outside of the healthcare system? Um, so even if we're not able to say we have, you know, a number of homeless folks that we care for that we're not able to directly in into our health plan coverage because, you know, maybe they're transient or we aren't able to make that connection. How do we also support through um, funding and other community benefit initiatives, you know, housing opportunities, food security opportunities, and as a, as a big player in the health player in California in general, I think that we are, are making some big moves in that space. And that's another way we can help access and accessibility to healthcare more indirectly. Um, and then I think internally, I think when I when you first say access, I think more of just about our internal structure and how we make decisions about, you know, where we build hospitals, where we build medical office buildings, how we are starting to increase our telehealth and our telemedicine presence. So even when, you know, folks might live 10 minutes away, but it's an hour and a half through Southern California traffic, how do we still make sure that they're getting the care that they need in a convenient way so that they're not, you know, putting off preventative care and they're they're not making, they're not incentivized to make decisions that are ultimately bad for their, their health outcomes. You just said telehealth, um, bring it back to COVID for a sec. Has your, uh, telehealth system gotten just sort of bombarded under, uh, COVID? 
Yeah. So for, for sure. And I think it's been, it's been one of, I think telehealth is one example of sort of one of the sort of hidden blessings of COVID, you know, at KP and other health care systems, we've been trying to move the needle on, you know, increasing the percentage of our care that is delivered through that modality. And, you know, we've been slowly marching along 2% increase here, 3% increase there. And then pretty much overnight, we were able to, con- to convert essentially 100% of our care to um, telehealth. Obviously, that means a lot of elective procedures were canceled and we had to make some other decisions just in, in managing capacity for this crisis. But I think that COVID will become a sort of a case study for when we remove all the barriers and when we do create a true burning platform, um, how quickly we can move to telehealth and how capable our telehealth system and infrastructure actually is at delivering, you know, 90% of the care that folks need. So I think this will, when we come out of this on the other side, I think our telehealth and our telemedicine structure and standards will look a lot different, which I'm excited about. Is is that a number that's been thrown around 90% that 90% of your care would be telehealth? I don't think the goal is to on a, on a sustained ongoing basis to to, to deliver 90% of our care um, through telehealth. But I think just the fact that we are able to, to be in those high eighties, nineties, a hundred percent for, for, you know, and, and we've eliminated a lot of the care that is not essential. Obviously we're just seeing stuff that, you know, if you have COVID-related symptoms, if you have a UTI that you need antibiotics for within the next 48 hours, like those types of things, we are fully capable of managing all of that through telehealth and then having, you know, our, our inpatient setting active if someone does meet the need to be seen in our emergency room or be seen in the hospital for a higher level of care. But I think, um, I think yeah, for some of those sort of, you know, bread and butter situations, our telehealth system is fully capable of handling a lot of that. Oh, so you were just saying 90% that's during the COVID, but not necessarily post COVID. That would be sort of a, yeah, I think, I think post COVID, once we add back in all of those other things, I think we wouldn't be able to hit 90%, but I think it, it will become, I, I don't think, I think if someone asked someone six months ago, Hey, if there was a pandemic crisis, would you be able to convert essentially all of your care to telehealth? I think people would have said, Oh no, that's impossible. But I think now we've, proven that it is possible to sort of do that and do it quickly so I think that will empower a lot more of our physicians to be comfortable delivering care that way and empower a lot of our administrators to continue to push on on what that system might look like and how we need to continue to design it better yeah that's definitely certainly uh, an interesting thing that will take off um I'm just curious to like how it'll ultimately like the one-to-one right the the sort of closeness of a doctor patient relationship mm-hmm. can that translate through to a virtual setting right. i don't know like in in some cases probably in other cases maybe not so i guess it'll just be sort of trial by fire for a lot of these things yeah um i wanted to ask you about um so like we said you worked uh at health care systems in oregon uh iowa even at mass general in boston um how does, does Kaiser Permanente, it's integrated healthcare system, what are like the main differences that you've noticed? Um, I guess it's, it's not necessarily fair to group those, all those other ones together, but maybe are there, there are differences amongst those four kind of different locations you've been? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think they all kind of stand out for different reasons. So I think, I guess I'll start sort of grouping those three academic medical centers in one group and then KP as the other. I think the big difference is obviously our, sort of our incentive structure. So Kaiser Permanente is a a capitated or a prepaid model where we, um, you know, sort of pay ourselves on a per member per month basis. So we, um, 
try to incentivize ourselves to take care of the whole the whole member and, and their total health. And so we're basically paid, you know, it varies by location, but say three or four, two hundred dollars per member per month. And we, we basically pay ourselves that much revenue per month and then multiply it by however member however many members we're taking care of in that space. And that's sort of our starting revenue, our starting budget. And so we basically have to deliver all of the care that we need to deliver for that member within that constraint of however much per member per month fee we've collected up front. And if we spend more, we don't go and build the member for more. And if we spend less, we're incentivized to spend less because we have to sort of keep those savings and then reinvest them in more capital or more improvement in our infrastructure. So that's the the capitated model that KP has, which I think is the best incentive to try to keep people well versus pretty much the rest of the healthcare system is fee for service where you're, you know, every unit of delivery, every touch point you have with the patient, you're billing them. So you're theoretically incentivized to deliver more care and sometimes might be incentivized to deliver procedures or surgeries or things that that person might not actually need. Of course, you know, there's the flip side with the the capitated model where you want to make sure that you're not under delivering services either. You want to make sure that you're not withholding care unintentionally. So there's certainly a double-edged sword with both of those models, but I think that's the biggest, um, the biggest macro difference. And I've seen that trickle down to sort of every level of, of conversation that we have about, you know, how we manage performance, how we incentivize people, um, is a very different conversation if you're in the fee-for-service world or in your if you're in the capitated world. Um, so that's the biggest difference. And then when I think about those those hospitals or those healthcare systems on more of an indi- individual basis, um, I, I mean, Iowa certainly stands out as being much more rural in general. And the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics is the only academic medical center in the state of Iowa. And, and academic medical centers, in addition to being, you know, often the training grounds for future residents, nurses, and other clinicians, they are also, you know, oftentimes a big innovator as far as as scientific discovery, and they often are also safety net providers. So University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics is certainly a safety net provider where essentially, you know, they're the place where if you need super high-end care, that's where you go. And if you can't, you know, pay for your healthcare, they're not going to turn you away. They're going to treat you no matter what. So I think that, um, not to say that other healthcare providers wouldn't, but being a state-funded hospital um, it certainly changes the way that we sort of approach care delivery. Um, and then, you know, Mass General had a lot of that sort of feeling too, as did OHSU in Portland. Um, I think Mass Gen stood out because um, they just do so much on the high-end scientific innovation space. They were, when I was there, they were doing, you know, some of the first um, T-cell therapy um, stuff, which I think is, has spread a little bit more since then. But um, so that that was a really exciting place to be just from, you know, knowing that in those walls, they're testing, you know, the very first of fill in the blank. Um, and so that comes with some of its challenges too, because oftentimes care is more expensive, but you're sort of paying that premium because you're, you're being part of that, that scientific innovation. So those are sort of my thoughts when I think about the differences between those systems. Yeah. The big thing that sticks out about Kaiser Permanente to me is just like the size, obviously, mm-hmm. right? And back east here, um, mergers and acquisitions are kind of considered sort of a negative, mm-hmm. right? It's it, it's it's considered in the sense of, well, we aren't getting, um, we aren't able to sort of make ends meet, so we need to just do more procedures and kind of make it up through the insurance companies. Where I don't feel like that is the sense uh, with Kaiser. So maybe 
can you talk about just the sheer size of the organization? And you, you, you alluded to it earlier, sort of like this, you have so much data, right? Because you have so many hospitals, but what are, what are some of the other advantages? And I guess maybe disadvantages, is there some sort of that sense of mergers and acquisitions that sort of leaves a bad taste in your mouth? No, I mean, I think, I think mergers and acquisitions definitely, you know, can have a negative connotation, um, especially I'm thinking back to like learning about it in, in grad school. And I think the, the main negative connotation for me is that it, it's, it's just, it's all those mergers and acquisitions have, you know, changed the practice of medicine so drastically in the last 10, 15 years, we no longer have those, um, those, you know, one doc, two doc shops where the doctor is taking care of that small town for his whole life. And then now his son or daughter is, you know, following his footsteps and sort of that, you know, romantic, idealistic image of what a family physician used to be um, doesn't really exist anymore. Um, But I think, you know, KP and other health systems, there's, there's a lot of a lot of benefits to that. I mean, the main benefit being, like you said, the data, we can do a much better job of pr- producing high quality care where we're actually, you know, catching breast cancer, catching colon cancer. We're making sure that the majority of our population actually gets vaccinated for the flu. So all of those things are really good things from a, a quality of healthcare perspective. Um, we can oftentimes do things at a, at a better cost and making things more affordable because we have economies of scale. We don't have to pay, you know, certain human resources or legal or really specialized functions to sit at every single medical center, we can do a shared service model where we have some of those things at a a national or regional level and are able to get cost savings from that uh, perspective without sacrificing on the care. So I think all of those are really good things. I think the main negative is that um, sort of that that physician bonding. Um, And we talk about that a lot at, at KP is how do we make sure we're still delivering excellent care? How do we make sure we, um, our members feel like they're still connected to providers and aren't just a number in the system. Um, and I think that we've sort of, I mean, I think it'll be interesting over the next 10, 15, 20 years to see that continue to play out. I don't think anyone can really put a number or a, a data point on what that sort of X factor of not having that level of bonding, what that does to care or what that does to a person's likelihood to seek out care when they need it. I mean, I think those are all things that we're thinking about and trying to design the system for so that those aren't barriers. But um, I think it's to be determined on how we, and as we add in telehealth too, and all these convenience care sort of modalities, how does that continue to sort of take away from that old school, highly bonded model of care where, you know, you went to the same doctor and your kids went to the same doctor for your whole life. So the other thing that occurred to me, right, Kaiser's so big, um, but it's it's not like there are a lot of other healthcare systems in California. So if I'm, you know, a patient, how do I sort of navigate this where I could either go to this big kind of, not single payer, but like a, just a very big organization or sort of my local hospital, right? How, what What do you see in my mind going on? Or what should be going on as I decide to pick between Kaiser and other healthcare systems? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the landscape looks really different in Northern versus Southern California, which I didn't really appreciate until I moved here. But I think Northern California, that's probably even more true. Our penetration rate is much higher in Northern California. We have, yeah, KP feels like, I mean, it's not the only option, but it, it feels super big in Northern California. I feel like Southern California, we do have a little bit more um, competition. It's just more of a competitive healthcare landscape down here for whatever reason but um 
yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, I think there's a question of what should be on top of mind when you or for yourself or for your family, you're making a decision about what healthcare provider to choose. And then there's also what is actually on your mind. So, I mean, I think what people, the data tells us that people make decisions about is cost. That's pretty much what people make their healthcare decisions on. And we've, we've, there's been a lot of studies published showing that even a $20 difference in the, the per month payment, the out-of-pocket costs that, that you're responsible for, for your healthcare, that can make the decision between deciding between KP or some other option. And often people aren't even getting to the level of looking at, you know, what's the leapfrog rating? What's the CMS star quality rating? What's the satisfaction measures? You know, what is all that data tell me about who's the best provider or who's not? Um, because they really, I think it just comes down to cost for so many people or they might not even have an option because it comes down to what their their employer has put in front of them as an option. So um, I think cost is what people actually make decisions on. And I think, you know, using some of those tools, I think we've gotten better over the last three to five years about having more public, publicly available um, comparison tools through CMS and LeapFrog and other groups to try to empower people to make the, those decisions. But I think they're still too clunky and too detailed for sort of the layperson to, in those three minutes when they're looking at their open enrollment options before the new year to actually make an informed decision about um, what's the best healthcare system. And I think it also depends on, you know, your health situation. Like, are you young and healthy or you have, do you have chronic diseases that need to be intentionally managed? Do you, you know, all of those things might also change what healthcare system you pick and what kind of care you might want delivered to you. Well, uh, two-part question. I guess, why, why do you think uh, Kaiser is not brought up as that much in like the national, national discussion regarding healthcare? And sort of a follow-up to that would be, you know, how scalable do you believe Kaiser's model is? Is it something that could be extended to all 50 states? Yeah, I mean, I think KP just has, um, you know, our historic roots with our, our, you know, we're rooted in kind of providing care to, to union labor. That's how we kind of got our start on the West Coast. And that's such an integral part of our sort of DNA as a healthcare system that we are very you know, tied in on the West Coast, and we've been here for 75 years. I think this is our 75th year this year. Um, so I think on the West Coast, we're very much talked about. But yeah, being in the Midwest on the East Coast, it's not that much of a conversation. I think um, because we don't have a presence in a lot, I mean, we have a little bit in, in Georgia and some other places. We also used to have a presence in Ohio and some other regions that we ended up backing out of. So I think um, that has made us just not as much of, of the conversation in other geographies. Um, I think people also see KP as such a, we are such a unique system um, that it, it doesn't almost feel like if you're, if you're an administrator or a doctor sitting in another healthcare system, we're probably not going to be the first person that you compare to or that you look to for innovation, because even, even if it's the wrong assumption, you probably just assume, oh, they have capitated payments and they are on the West Coast and they have a totally different population and what they're doing might not be transferable to what I'm trying to do here in a small town in Minnesota or here in a very urban environment in New York City. So I think that's part of the, the reason. Um, as far as as scalable, I think I think personally I believe that the KP model is sort of the best answer um, for healthcare in our country. And I think it, it is something that could be scaled. Um, but I think the problem with, with capitation is for it to be successful, you kind of have to, it's very hard to grow it incrementally. You can't 
you know, it's hard to say, oh, we'll add 100 members and then 1,000 members and then 10,000 members. You kind of, you have to get to a certain population size for the risk to be balanced correctly and for um, a lot of those incentives to actually play out in a population. And that's why I think we're very intentional in, in where we grow. So I think there would have to be some type of, you know, government or other, you know, action to try to help us. Because if we just continue to grow naturally, we're going to continue to grow in places that were are contiguous to us already. And, you know, I think it's going to be a very slow, intentional process. So to scale it to the whole country, I think there would have to be some sort of external external force to help um, that model be sort of forced upon the rest of the, the country. Well, surely uh, healthcare and talk of healthcare <laughs> isn't going anywhere. So let's hope that, um, you know, Kaiser starts to become more and more of the yeah, discussion. Absolutely. Eh? Um, so we'll uh, finish up with a lightning round, a series of fast paced questions uh, that tell uh-huh. us more about you. So um, this is actually a pop quiz for you <laughs> to start. Riverside, Riverside, California is about 40 miles from Monrovia. What famous business has its headquarters in Monrovia, oh, California? I do know that one, Trader Joe's. I was very excited to be somewhat near Monrovia because I love Trader Joe's. Excellent. A plus. Um, so what is your, do you, do you shop do. at Trader Joe's? Absolutely. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what is your favorite item to pick also up at Trader Joe's? Also a easy question. So chicken tiki masala, and they also have the frozen naan, and I probably eat that like four times a week for dinner, which is not healthy due to sodium, but it's my favorite. Very good. Nice. I actually go for the paneer tikka masala myself, but uh, it's all, all that frozen <laughs> Indian food's pretty good. Um, better place to watch a football game, Otson or Kinnick? Oh, that's a hard question. I call myself a duck eye to try to bridge between the ducks and the hawk. Oh, there you go. So I don't have to pick, <laughs> but my first college job was at Otson Stadium. So I think I'm going to go with Otson for that one. Go ducks. All right, go ducks. Uh, favorite landmark in Los Angeles? Ooh, well, I went, I did hike at Griffith Park. That was one of the things I checked off my LA checklist a couple weeks ago. So that's probably my favorite so far. That is that is next to the Hollywood sign. Yes, you can sign, kind of right? like see the Hollywood sign, but I, I've heard there's like another okay. hike where you can actually hike like between or behind the Hollywood sign, but I've yet to find that one yet. I was actually there um, almost a year ago. I went there for Memorial Day weekend last year. Went to uh, Joshua Tree National Park, and then we did some hiking at Griffith. So <laughs> go LA. Uh, lastly, best thing about working for Kaiser. Um, I mean, I think just how, how big it is in the sense that like every day I meet 10 new people that are super cool and have some job function that I never thought about or didn't know existed. And people are just super warm and willing to let me, Hey, can I come spend a day with you and learn about that function? So I think, um, just having all that resource at my fingertips is my favorite part. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.